On today's episode, we delve into the discovery of a fascinating planet. From childish jokes to cutting-edge research, this lopsided ice giant made a name for itself as a bizarre world, regardless of how you pronounce that name. There's a rare isotope of hydrogen that gets us into heavy water. Loves the chemical reaction in the brain So let me be your Bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame burn, baby, burn. Let me be your Bunsen Hello and welcome to Light Your Bunsen Burner. I'm Mariela Rosas, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, straight from Planet X. Yo, baby, what's up? It's Jonah. <laughs> so we want to thank everyone joining us today. We have a stellar show for you. Just a fair warning to everyone, there will be bad jokes and terrible puns. I am so sorry, but there is no way we can do an entire episode on this topic without them. Can't wait. <laughs> Okay, Jonah, for our previous episodes, we've stayed on planet Earth. For today's episode, we're going to travel into the vast expanse of space. But don't worry, we're staying local, we're staying in the solar system. But we are going to a place no man has gone before. We're going somewhere that's cold on the outer edges and very hot in the middle. It's gassy and it's blue it's probably it probably has a solid mass deep, deep, deep in its center, but if anything tried to penetrate it, it would be completely destroyed. Do you know where we're going, Jonah? Off that description, I think I do. Yes. <laughs> so I want to start our discussion of the seventh planet by addressing the pronunciation of its name. Both Uranus and Uranus are acceptable pronunciations. However, the serious astronomical community prefers to use Uranus. Just in case it's not clear why, pronouncing the name Uranus sounds just like we're saying your anus. And that is a completely perfect science right there. <laughs> the science of Uranus. The science of some of the greatest jokes ever. <laughs> the science of the booty hole. But here at Light, Light Your Bunsen Burner, we are an inclusive couple. We are definitely not above making elementary school jokes. So for the remainder of the show, I will pronounce it Uranus to please all the scientifically minded people. And Jonah will pronounce it. <laughs> I shall pronounce it the proper way. And that will be Uranus. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get started. So... Since most of the planets in the solar system are visible with the naked eye, they were observed by the ancients. The term planet itself means wanderer. So I believe it comes from the Greek planete. Um, so as the ancients studied the night sky, planets stood out because their movement, their movements were drastically different than those of fixed stars. As the Earth rotates on its axis, stars in the far reaches of space they move in a fixed and predictable pattern. That's why constellations, for example, always appear in the same formations in particular sections of the sky. In contrast, planets are moving 
on their own orbits. So, and they're also much closer to Earth. So their movements are far more drastic and they can be observed just on a given night. So, for example, the Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians all knew how to differentiate planets from stars. In fact, these, and of course other civilizations, had observed and named the first five planets, besides Earth, obviously, by the time telescopes were invented. Now, weren't these um, planets different colors than the stars? Uh, some of them do do have like distinct coloration. Like, for example, uh, I think... Mars, the- I believe, is red. Like, yeah, it should have a reddish hue. Um, Venus is like the brightest star, quote unquote, visible in the night sky. So that one was really obvious. It's also Um, one of the closest planets to us. Um, Like a blue one, like Neptune or something like that. Oh, Neptune is way far out. Oh, no, we can't see that. We can't see that one. (laughs) So, yeah. So uh, you can tell by their names that they were seen by the by the ancients. Because, you know, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn are all named after Roman deities. Obviously, like, each civilization did name it after their own gods. But, you know, gradually, as the Roman Empire kind of conquered a lot of that area, they they took in all that information and renamed them. Uh, And those are the names that stuck. So now, improvements on the early telescope made by Galileo Galilei in 1609, allowed astronomers to take a closer look at our celestial neighbors. By the 1700s, telescopes were essential tools for the expert and amateur astronomer, and many would-be astronomers were turning their gaze up to the sky during this time. So let's talk about one of those people. This was a man named William Herschel. He was born... On November 15th, 1738 in Hanover, and that's what is, uh, it's part of what is now Germany. Um, obviously back then, like, the the map lines were completely different than they are now. I believe it was like the Kingdom of Hanover. So his name, uh, his given birth name was originally Friedrich Wilhelm Herschel, so pretty German sounding. <laughs> yeah. um, but later he anglicized it when he moved to England. That way, you know, he wouldn't sound so foreign, I guess. So how did it sound then? So he was he was originally named Friedrich. Friedrich. Wilhelm. Oh, I see. Herschel. <laughs> I don't know. I can't do a German accent. <laughs> German accents are hard. Yes. I, I can do a Russian. <laughs> <laughs> he did a good Russian, yeah. <laughs> um, um, also, in several of the, the literature that I read... About like the origins of his of like like his early life, his family. They try. They made a point of stating that it based on their last name, it was likely that his family was of Jewish origin. Even though by by the time he became famous, they were Protestants. But in one one account, I, it actually said something like, "Oh, the family was of Jewish origin, but since they weren't really good at making money, they turned to being musicians." Because, you know, yeah, at the time, you know, money. yeah, at the time being Jewish was uh, more significant than it is now, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So he was one of 10 children born to musician Isaac Herschel and his wife, Anna. Isaac was an oboist in the Hanover military band, and most of William's siblings were musicians themselves. I think only his eldest brother didn't take up an instrument. I like this family a lot already. Yeah, yeah, they're really cool because 
Isaac, he he was really into teaching his kids from an early age how to play instruments. William, he grew up in a musical family, and he actually learned to play the handmade violins uh, that his father made at a really early age. So his his father was making violins. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, this is like the the early 1700s. Mm. Um, so I mean, he his father had a lot of skills. Um, so, yeah, his family was not particularly wealthy in any way. However, Isaac made it a point that his sons were educated beyond what was normal for boys of their station. So that since they weren't really rich, like his kids weren't expected to go to, you know, good, like really great schools or like pursue any like careers that, you know, like higher station kids would. But he, he, his, their dad was really adamant about you know, you guys need, need to get like a really good education. You guys need to be well-rounded people. And, you know. Smart. Mm-hmm. So young William proved to be an adept learner. He was quickly picking up French and Latin much faster than his older brothers. He also really liked to engage in lively debates about philosophy with his father and siblings. Uh, his sister actually recalls how even after going to bed, because they shared a room, like he shared a room with his brother, he would continue arguing or like, you know, discussing the topic that they had been. And he would continue to speak until um, he realized that his brother was asleep. So he would just continue like what his thought process was, what he was thinking, and his brother would just fall asleep next to him. So he liked to hear himself talk. I think, I think he really just, it was more of he just liked to express, like he was really passionate about certain things and he really wanted to discuss it. And he didn't really know when to stop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I know a lot of people like that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Me? <laughs> no, no. Of course not. So throughout his career as a musician, William picked up the violin, the oboe, the harpsichord, and the organ. He also composed dozens of symphonies and concertos. You can actually listen to them still. Um, at work today, I was actually playing some of his music. I oh, really I that, like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, he was a contemporary of Mozart. So, I mean, he was clearly overshadowed by his more more famous uh, contemporary, but his stuff was really good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. So now, Jonah, you are a musician yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So you can attest to the time and effort it, it takes to learn an instrument. It does. It takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you play multiple instruments? I do, yes. So to learn multiple instruments, you really have to have like focus and like intent and you have to be a little dedicated. Yes. Yeah. Dedicated. That's yeah. a great word for it. And that is what he was. And um, kind of on a little side note, um, I had no idea what a harpsichord was. Oh, no. No. <laughs> so I went online and I Googled people playing it and it's such a bizarre looking instrument. It looks like a piano and a harp had like a little mm. love child. Yeah. It sounds like it too. Um, I love the Adams family, and they're always playing the harpsichord. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen. Wait, have I? Seen and there's it? a really cool episode where Lurch becomes famous for playing the harpsichord. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I wanted to bring up something. Do you know um, what? Did you did you know that the harpsichord was heavily featured in Pet Sounds? Um. I did not know that, but it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Like, um, noticeably, it's in Caroline No, and um, You Still Believe in Me. And, you know, during the, the 1960s... Um, it was very it, popular. Yeah, like, yes. it was like, there, it experienced a huge resurgence. So, I just, 
it, I thought it was funny because um, you can go like 200 years and then this instrument comes back in fashion and it's like in every single um, rock album, you know, from the Beach Boys to the Beatles to basically everyone was using it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, let, back to the story. So William was already working as a musician from a very young age. In 1753, at the age of 14, William joined his his father and brother Jacob as a non-combatant band member of the Hanoverian Guard. So at this time, tensions between France and Great Britain were growing. I mean, these two had always been at odds with each other, but at this time, like that, that tension, the aggression was starting to build up again. Hanover was at the time united with Britain under the rule of of, uh, King George II. So when conflict broke out, the guard left Hanover in defense of England. They eventually did get recalled back once Hanover itself was being threatened by, by the French. William's brother, Jacob, actually managed to receive a dismissal from the service because he was going to accept a position in the court orchestra of Hanover. Unfortunately for William, he remained in the guards. And this is this is already like the conflict is broken breaking out. So this is mm. I believe it's the Seven Years War, okay. is when this time period. So like 1750s or so. So following an arduous battle outside of Hanover, in which the French occupied Hanover, his father decided to send the 18 year old William and his brother Jacob to England to keep them safe. Uh, Jacob was a civilian at this point, so he could ch- as long as he c- could slip out of Hanover without being picked up by the French, he, he can get out without any issues. William, on the other hand, uh, he was still enlisted. So he would need to either be dismissed or just desert in order in order to leave. Since he had been too young when he first enlisted to take the oath of service, his father Isaac believed that this was excuse enough for William to just, you know, up and leave without getting the proper paperwork or without getting the, the dismissal that he should have gotten. As it turns out, William's departure was deemed desertion because the, yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean you're you're leaving the army, uh, even though he was he was just a musician, he wasn't in a combat role. They still deemed it desertion, um, and his father was actually arrested for aiding him and like leaving. And uh, even when the fighting was over in Hanover, William chose to stay in England. And this could have been because he was finding more work in England or because he could not return without consequences since he wasn't, by all intents and purposes, a deserter. Eventually, he does get pardoned for that and he does get his dismissal, but it takes a couple of uh, a couple of years and some, um, you know, work by his brother Jacob, who was, part, you know, a musician in the court. So, yeah, he was likely a so deserter. So it's, it's who you know. Yeah, it's basically who you know. Still to this day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in England, he worked as as a musician in several British British cities, but eventually he ended as the organist in the Octagon Chapel in the mid 1760s. And he also became the director of public concerts. So he was very involved in the like the musical community at that time. Like I mean, he was a, a noted composer. He did write symphonies, concertos. He was a, a um, well thought of musician because he was pretty talented at what he did. Um, and he played multiple instruments. And so it's at this time that he settles in a house on New King Street in Bath. And then his sister Caroline joins him in 1772 after the death of their of their father. Aww. 
Mm-hmm. That's also at this time that his interest in astronomy starts to flourish because he he's settled now. He's not like traveling around, and he's not nece- he's not a young man anymore. He's got more room in his life for just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To, like just hobbies the music. and stuff. Yeah. He has a stable income, so he's able to apply himself into uh, astronomy. And William's father had an interest in astronomy, and William's own keen drive for knowledge led William to really pursue this hobby. So it's likely that his first book on astronomy was one titled Astronomy Explained Upon Sir Isaac Newton's Principles and Made Easy to Those Who Have Not Studied Mathematics. What a title. Which, to me, if we want to put it in simple terms, is basically just Newton's Principles for Dummies. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's already a hit seller right there. Yeah. (laughs) So now by 1773, his interest in astronomy became all-consuming, and he was really determined to build his own telescope since he could not afford to buy one of them. So um, I'm sure at the time these were special instruments, and it would take a very large portion of your salary uh, to buy them already made. So instead, uh, so his sister Caroline and brother Alexander were living with him at this point, and William had learned to make telescope mirrors out of speculum metal. So he and his brother Alexander worked really tirelessly up to 16 hours per day. Again, we we complain about 10 or so. <laughs> well, you know, when it's fun and something you want to do, oh, that's okay. different. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like. Um, yeah, so they're working like 16, 16 hours per day to build these telescopes. So it's kind of cool. They even um, convert several rooms in their home into workshops just so they can get like stuff. So they're really into it. They're, they're really it. invested. They're dedicated. Mm-hmm. They got this. Yeah. So uh, as Caroline, the sister, recalls, quote, I w- it was to my sorrow that I saw almost every room in the house turned into a workshop. Alex was putting up huge turning machines in a bedroom for turning patterns, grinding glasses, and turning eyepieces. Any glass they can get their hand on. Yeah, I mean, they're... Which, to me, sounds peculiar because they can't afford a telescope, but they can afford all this equipment and materials to build one. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, or maybe maybe they were building this after... Uh, or, you know, I, I I'm not sure. Um, anyways, they did complete a seven-foot focal-length instrument with a 6.2-inch reflector. It was with this telescope that in mid-1773, William Herschel turned his gaze to the sky to begin, quote, his reviews of the heavens. So, as as he was doing his research into the night sky, basically, he kept really detailed logs describing the rings of Saturn or great nebulas in Orion, and these lasted, like, for decades. He was very thorough with um, how he kept his his notes, uh, which any, any good researcher would do. So uh, it's also stated that even when he was performing in the theater, so he still has a job uh, outside of his hobby. So even while he's performing at the theater, he would actually run out in between acts to stare at the skies. Um, So this was obviously a man who was deeply passionate about astronomy, possibly beyond what his initial um, work was. Because he was initially a trained musician, but now he's taken up this hobby and it's just all consuming and he's just so obsessed with it. It's the beginning of going to the dark side. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, he's slowly turning. (laughs) So now in 1779... 
he set out to, quote, observe every star in the heavens, which even by by today's standards is a near impossible feat, considering that there are about 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way. But he did really make some great headway. He discovered 848 multiple star systems. So he was really interested in binary stars. So stars that kind of like uh, circle around each other. So he discovered 848 new uh, multiple star systems between 1782 and 1784. Dang, so that's like, pretty busy. This yeah, he years. was just boom, boom, boom. But Jonah, uh, you know, he is out staring at the sky every single night. Now, there's just one particular night that I want to talk about. Oh. A very, very special night. Is this the probing? (laughs) (laughs) Where he observed something that very few people had actually seen. So, picture this with me. It's a cool March night in England. It's around 10 or 11 p.m. So, William Herschel has his telescope trained on the constellation Gemini. So he's got this beautiful thing that he made himself. It's long and extended, and it's looking up into the empty void of space. The heavens, as they say. The heavens. You can imagine how diligently he is jotting down all his notes about the position of each star that he sees, when perhaps just out of the corner of his eye, he observes something bizarre moving across the star field. A shooting star, maybe? Maybe, maybe, maybe it takes him a moment to focus on it, and he sees more clearly that it's a quote-unquote star that seems much, much brighter than all those around it. Immediately, he suspects it's a comet or something similar. Okay. So he changes the magnification on his telescope from 227 to 460 and then to 932. This is because he knew that the diameter of fixed stars would not change when the magnification was increased. However, this object's diameter did change. So, can you imagine the little glee building up inside him? To his knowledge, this was was not a comet or planet that had previously been observed by anyone else. And why is it moving? Why is it moving? So, for the next couple of weeks, he takes his time. He, so he continues to observe the quote-unquote comet, taking notes about its movements, appearance, distance from fixed stars, etc. So now on April 6th, he wrote, quote, The comet appeared perfectly sharp without the least appearance of any beard or tail. More like a circle or a planet. Exactly. Like the moon or something. <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm excited. Could this be Uranus? <laughs> we'll find out, but let's... Go ahead and take a little quick break to listen to uh, something that our sponsor has to say. Listen. So we're back. So um, William Herschel has just observed a strange object in the night sky on a March night. And we're about to find out what it is. So William reports his discovery to the Astronomer Royale, Neville Maskelyne. Neville Maskelyne. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Say that 20 times fast. Neville Maskelyne. <laughs> 
So yeah, so this he is the head honcho astronomer for for the British. Okay. Um. So this guy is also perplexed by the tailless comet because it's we know we know now it's not a comet. Now other astronomers picked up on this new discovery. Uh, Swedish astronomer Anders Johan Lexell. Lexell. He computed the orbit and determined that it resembled the orbit of a planet rather than a comet. So he's already starting to notice, okay, you know, it's it's different. It's something new. It's not a comet. Then Johan Ehlert Bode in Berlin also agreed that the circular orbit was more planet-like, and he made the statement, quote, that it was a, quote, a moving star that can be deemed a hitherto unknown planet-like object beyond the orbit of Saturn. I like that guy. He's Johan? got yeah, that's my middle name, Johan. Jonah Johan. Jonah Johan. The other guy's middle name was Johan. All right. Anders Johan Lexel. Oh yeah, I like all these guys. A lot of Johan Johans. Maybe you can discover a planet. Huh? A planet. Uranus. <laughs> I would love to discover Uranus. <laughs> I'm next in line. I'm Johan. <laughs> <laughs> so now that, that it was accepted as a new planet, right? This planet needed a name. As the discoverer, William was given the right to name his new planet. He decided to give it the super, super catchy name of Gregorium Sidus. Uh, so that translates to George's star or Georgian planet. And this was in uh, honor of King George III. So he was kind of trying to suck up to, to the king. Be- so he was brown nosing. He was brown nosing, mm. yes. Yes, you see where does uh, Uranus is coming in on this? <laughs> okay, we are professionals. We have microphone stands. Yeah. But Georgie was very unpopular outside of England, so this made the name didn't catch on. So this is King George the Third. This is who um, the Americans are fighting for independence at this time. Oh, okay. Around this time. Um, or had just defeated, what did I, what year are we in? <laughs> <laughs> We're in 1700s still, right? Yeah, so by this time, the Americans had already defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. America! <laughs> yeah, he was, the king was very unpopular. So the guy you like, Johann Ehlert, uh, he proposed the name Uranus. Hey, why not? Uranus. I'm supposed to say Uranus. Obviously, other astronomers had wanted to name it Herschel, but that didn't quite match with the naming conventions of all the other planets. So Uranus was the Latinized version of the Greek god of the sky, Oranos. The other theory to this that has gone back for many, many centuries of ancient times and all that other stuff is that Johan was a comical genius (laughs) that a lot of people didn't realize. And he's like, I'm going to set up a great... And funny elementary joke for the next hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. Anytime that middle school kids are learning about the solar system, it's going to make life miserable for their teachers. See, when I die, this is who I want to hang out with. This guy. (laughs) You know, there's all kinds of cool people out there, you know, Tupac and John Lennon and everybody. I want to hang out with this guy, the Uranus guy, (laughs) you know. With Jonah Bode. You know, the guy who deemed the 69 as a funny number, too. Me, him, and Johan will go and uh, and have drinks. 69 Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) To party in the heavens tonight. (laughs) So, Johan's rationale 
naming the planet Uranus, was that Uranus, the, that Greek god, was the father of Saturn and the grandfather of Jupiter. And these were planets that had already been discovered and in the order of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, it kind of went in increasing order of like, you know, seniority of the gods. Hmm. Um, so then... So the seventh being less of the... He was like the, the older of the gods. He was, cause, oh. you know, Ju- there's Jupiter... His dad was Saturn. Saturn's dad. Saturn's dad was Kronos, and that's that's the Roman name for Uranus. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. So it just gets older and older. Yeah. So and and um, Uranus is unique in the the way, or the name Uranus is unique because it is a Greek name rather than a Roman name. Like all the other planets are named after the Roman gods, but uh, Uranus is named after the Greek god. It's just kind of Latinized. Hmm. That's very neat. Very yeah. interesting to know. So, yeah, your your anus is Latin. Your anus is Latin. <laughs> so, this was the name that stuck, and it became the universal name in eight, by 1850. So, basically... I wonder why. I think people really enjoyed it. <laughs> they enjoyed your anus. <laughs> so, it stuck. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, so it it had been really adopted most by most of the world for you know decades and decades, and like the last holdout was like the naval almanac who was still wanting who still called it um, Georgium Sidis, like that original name, and then in 1850 it finally like they finally agreed to change it to to Uranus, and then that's how it officially became Uranus. Okay. <clears throat> So this not with you old people. Yeah, in your old ways. We don't want to change because we we're want British. Uranus. <laughs> what do we want? Uranus. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> so that meant that at forty-three, William had cemented himself as an expert astronomer. He and his family were moved to Windsor, so the royal family could actually use his telescopes, and he was given a stipend of two hundred pounds, which was a lot of money back then. So he also continued his uh, working as an astronomer for the next four decades. He observed Uranus's largest moons, Titania and Oberon. And even in the last years of his life, he frailly worked with his telescopes. Like his, um, I believe it was his housekeeper who kind of describes him like in his 80s, like it's like the last year of his life. And he's like really feebly picking up like the parts of his tel- telescope, even at his very, very old age. Mm. Yeah. See that last mooning? See the last mooning? He just wanted to look at Uranus one last time. And Uranus was there for him. <laughs> um. So William died on August 25th, 1822 at the observatory house. He had a lifetime of achievement, but still felt unsatisfied with everything he had not discovered. So, like, remember, he wanted to look at every star in the universe. But, you know, being human, we are mortal and frail and we decay and die. So he was never able to accomplish that feat, at least to his satisfaction. But he, you know, he is he was he lives on in his discovery or his discoveries and And his music. Yeah, and his music too, which is good. Mm. Listen to it. Yes. Now, let's kind of back up a sec. I want to be fair and just state that Herschel was not technically, he wasn't the quote-unquote first to see Uranus. That was probably Jonas's mom. (laughs) (laughs) 
so observations of the planet by astronomer Hipparchus were likely included in Ptolemy's Almagest in the second century AD. And uh, just uh, to state this, that Almagest was a really famous tome of astro astronomical observations that was put together by you know Ptolemy. And he kind of took the the works of uh, previous astronomers and kind of compiled them into this big volume. Um, and it was pretty influ influential for for multiple centuries to come. And that's probably the like the first observation of Uranus. Now, English astronomer John Flamsteed observed Uranus at least six times in 1690, and he cataloged it as 34 Tari. So he named it. 34 Tari instead of like anything else, but he didn't really like report it. Uh, it wasn't like a major thing. Now, French astronomer Pierre Charles Lemonnier observed it 12 times between 1750 and 1769, including on four consecutive nights. So he sounds like he was really quite a voyeur just looking at Uranus all the time. Oh, yeah, he's peeping. They <laughs> used to call him Tom, peeping. you know, peeping Tom. <laughs> 12 times. <laughs> 12 yeah. times peeper. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Williams was the first to clearly report it, though. So he's the one who gets the credit, and he, you know, he um, he published uh, like a small paper about it, or like the the letter that he wrote to um, like uh, the other astronomer. That's like how he described it because he had like really detailed schematics of like its position, uh, its changing position, and like where it was located based on other stars, and like the type of telescope he used. It's really cool. So he, yeah, he was really detailed. So let's talk about Uranus specifically. Why is Uranus special? Why is Uranus special? Yeah, tell me, mm. Jonah. Uh, I do a lot of squats. <laughs> <laughs> like you eat a lot of prunes. <laughs> fiber. A lot of fiber. Lots of fiber. So let's talk a bit about this planet. So the seventh planet is at a distance of eight of one point eight billion miles away from the sun. So it takes two hours and forty minutes for sunlight to for sunlight to reach Uranus. So very dark there. It is the fourth largest planet in the solar system, with a radius of uh, with a radius four times that of Earth. As NASA puts it, if Earth was the size of a nickel, Uranus would be as big as a softball. So Uranus is uh, where the sun don't shine. Would exactly. You say that? Okay. And it's big. And it's big. It's wide. I like big planets, and I cannot lie. <laughs> you know. So one day on Uranus is about seventeen hours long, but a year, um, being you know that being how long it takes for it to do a complete orbit around the sun, is about eighty-four Earth years long. So that it takes a long ass time for this planet to circle around the sun. Yeah, so, it says uh, one. So one year is thirty thousand six hundred and eighty-seven days. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on the NASA Science Solar System Exploration on Google. Check it out. Um, you just type in the planet that you want to see, and it's set up just like a Pokemon card, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Uranus is um, the ice giant planet type ice. <laughs> you know, so you can. Fight them against, I don't know, water or something like that. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> then there's the gas giant. So yeah. you have the ice giant. Then you have the rocky. Oh, my God. They're Pokemon. <laughs> Uranus is a Pokemon. <laughs> I choose you, Uranus. <laughs> I choose Uranus. 
Yep. So 84 Earth years to go around the sun. So, you know, to put it in perspective, it would take a lifetime to spend just one year on Uranus. Unless you're planning to live like 100 years then. And then that's different, yeah. That's different, but don't do that. No, don't don't live long. <laughs> don't, live. don't live long and healthy. That's just terrible. <laughs> there's, too, there's already too many people on yes. Earth. So the most notable thing about Uranus is that it's tilted. It has an almost 90 degree tilt, so it rotates sideways. Its equator is almost completely perpendicular to its orbit. So if you're if you're looking at a plane, a flat plane, and the bottom is like the, the circular orbit, so that's where the planets would be residing on, flip the planet on its side, and then that's how it's spinning. So it'd be like it's rolling on the plane. Oh, wow. Instead of like, you know, like how Earth uh, kind of it rotates upwards, mm -hmm. so like a top. Yes. Um, Uranus is just like rolling. Uranus just does what it needs to do. Yeah, huh? Uranus just does whatever. Like, you know, it's free. I roll how I want. <laughs> I'm Uranus. So yeah, so this this tilt causes really extreme seasons on the planet. For about one-fourth of the Uranian year, each pole is submerged in complete darkness. For about like 22 years, it's very dark in Uranus. So could this be why it was just barely getting discovered? Not necessarily. I think it's more is that it's just really far away. I see. Yeah, so it's it's hard to see just because yeah. it's so far. Yeah, so it's 20 years of darkness. And uh, let's talk about how it possibly got this tilt. So the latest research suggests that about 3 to 4 billion years ago, Uranus was pounded by a massive rock two times the size of Earth. So Uranus got pounded. Uranus got pounded. And now it's sideways. <laughs> Slanted. <laughs> okay. Um, so this left the poor planet lopsided, obviously. And what whatever this object was is still unknown. It's actually speculated that it may still be out there lurking in the outer solar system, just waiting to come and give Uranus another deep impact. Another pounding, huh? Another that, pounding. That should be a movie. Like, you know, <laughs> deep impact part two. Uranus gets pounded. <laughs> Children should stay home for this one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Uranus is classified as an ice giant. Unlike um, Jupiter and Saturn, which are just gas giants, um, Uranus is a bit more icy. It has a three-layer structure. And its center is likely a rocky core surrounded by an icy mantle and then enveloped in a gaseous atmosphere. Hey, where's the creamy filling? <laughs> oh, you have to put the creamy filling. Deep impact part two. Um, so the ice mantle is composed of hot, dense fluid. There's your creamy filling. Known as a water ammonia ocean. Methane can also be found in the section. Uh, the temperature can reach as high as 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's pretty hot. Now, for Uranus atmosphere, it's made up of hydrogen, helium, and also methane. And it's this methane that gives Uranus its very distinct bluish-green color. I don't know if you've seen pictures of it. It's like this really pretty, like, deepish blue. Um, so the atmosphere can reach temperatures as low as negative 370 degrees Fahrenheit, making Uranus one of the coldest planets in the solar system. Hmm. Yeah. So Uranus produces methane. 
Uranus does produce a lot of methane. A lot of methane, huh? Yeah, it's described. And it's cold blooded. I mean, blooded. <laughs> so it's it's described if a spaceship was trying to like land on Uranus, it would have to. Um, so like as it's going deeper and deeper into this these clouds, the pressure is increasing. Like they're getting thicker and thicker. You're getting more and more you know, of that methane. So it's getting darker and darker blue. And then finally, when it reaches that, that like fluid mantle, it's just going to be like the spaceship would just be completely ripped apart. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So Uranus is a very violent place. And your spaceship may be ripped apart. (laughs) Yeah. Be careful when you land. So when Voyager 2 flew by Uranus in 1986, the pictures that sent back showed a kind of boring blue world with minimal weather activity. The climate seemed divided into a bright polar cap and darker equatorial bands. The planet also showed 10 distinct bands on its surface and one bright southern band. However, as Uranus has reached its equinox, the calm planet has become increasingly active. In 2007, a dim northern collar was observed. Also, the Uranus dark spot was observed that year. The latest survey of Uranus in 2019 showed the North Pole covered by an enormous stormy cloud cap. But just to be clear, wind speeds on Uranus reach up to 560 miles per hour. So that's really violent. The fastest wind recorded on Earth was 253 miles per hour, and that was Hurricane Olivia in 1996. Wow. So it's like wind speeds there can be double what they are on Earth. Like with the strongest storm. So as you get to that black spot on Uranus, does the wind speeds increase? Probably. That's probably where it's like the most violent. The most most pressurized. The most pressurized. Yeah. So Uranus has 27 natural satellites. That is moons and other orbiting bodies. So the largest one, the largest moons are called Puck, Miranda, Ariel, Umbriel, and Titania. Titania and Oberon. So these are also unique in that their names are not Greek deities, I mean, or not Roman deities. These are all named after characters by William Shakespeare and Alexander Pope. I think uh, most of them are from the uh, Mid- Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, why such the decline in names? Like why they didn't um, name them? After some kind of... Uh... I, it's I just God, like whoever discovered them decided, like, I, I would rather That's name them after into? Shakespeare instead of, you know, okay. s- stupid Greek god or whatever. So this is about the time we needed Johan again. <laughs> so no, nothing wrong with William Shakespeare's names and all that, but we needed Johan to, to, come in. to keep Uranus alive. I and, mean, what other names strong. could you have named these moons? I mean, Puck. Puck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. <laughs> the brown planet? <laughs> the, br- the brown moon. <laughs> brown. Um, besides these moons and these satellites, also cir- circling Uranus are 13 known rings. The rings are made from small particles ranging in size from micrometers to about less than a meter. William Herschel actually described rings around Uranus, but... It's, his observations are doubtful since it's unlikely his telescope would have actually let him see the faint rings. But he made very accurate predictions as to uh, where the rings were located and kind of like what they looked like. 
So maybe he just had like a special telescope that no one knew about that could actually see him. I mean, if Saturn can have rings, why couldn't Uranus? You know, the ring of Uranus? Well, like Saturn's rings are really big. The rings on Uranus, they're pretty faint. Uh, so it took a while to really confirm. So Herschel is seeing them in the, the late 1700s, or he says he, he's claiming to see them. They're not confirmed like until 1977. Wow. Well, th- that's the first official sighting by, by scientists at the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. So yeah, that's like 200 years after Herschel. And these they have like more state-of-the-art equipment ba- instead of like his handmade telescopes. Which is still amazing. Yeah, that's still incredible. But that's why they think maybe he didn't actually see them. And it just was a really, really big coincidence that it did happen to have rings. So then the Voyager 2 confirmed the existence of the rings in 1986. And then in 2005, the, the Hubble Space Telescope detected two more rings. The inner rings are a faint gray color, while the outer rings are a brighter red. And um, th- yeah, they're more colorful. So like everything else about Uranus, it wears its rings tilted. So its rings are on its side, just because that's how it's spinning too. So it makes sense. So far, Voyager 2 has been the only expedition out to Uranus. The distance from Earth makes future exploration costly and time-consuming. At this moment, there are no further plans to explore Uranus, which is very sad. I'm sorry. Poor Uranus. However, researchers do uh, are pushing for future visits to the lonely ice giant because you cannot leave Uranus alone. We have to go send a probe down there, figure out what's happening. We can't leave your Uranus lonely. <laughs> so as we're going to wrap up uh, our tale about Uranus, I want to share a couple of other little fun facts. Uh, for example, in astrology, Uranus is the ruling planet of Aquarius. And that to me really doesn't mean anything, but probably to our previous uh, show topic, Carrie Mullis, it might mean a lot. Yeah, to like um, like astrology and stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, if you want to, I don't know, like find out when you were born and... Like do your star map. And or, find your true love or some crap like that. Or <laughs> Do they do lottery numbers? No, see, is they that... waste their time, you know? <laughs> Now, um, also, uranium was discovered in 1789, and it's named after the new planet. Um, There is also an orchestral suite called Uranus the Magician by Gustav Holst. And I thought that was kind of neat because it was discovered by by a composer, also by a musician. So that's kind of fitting. Also, Operation Uranus was a military operation in which the Red Army took back Stalingrad during World, World War II. That kind of turned the the tides of the war at that time. So those are my fun facts, Jonah. Do you have any fun facts about Uranus that you want to share? (laughs) They're all on my private site. (laughs) (laughs) It's www.privatejonah.com. And you can see all my fun facts about Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've made it through this episode with (laughs) only short fits of laughter if there's anything that you want to share with us about your anus please feel free to drop us a line at our email bunsenburnerpod at gmail.com you can also find us on the internet and i don't mean you know you can't find you know our anus on the internet uh i, I mean our website bunsenburnerpod.com there you can find blurbs about the show um, I'll definitely have several things to say about Uranus. You can also find tidbits about 
you know, Jonah and I, because we have, you know, we're strange people, obviously, and we have like fun backgrounds. Um, or you can contact us there as well. It does have an option for that. Uh, but if you want to uh, tell me personally everything you know about Uranus, you can find me at Gatos and Tiaras on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can search my name on Facebook. I'm sure you'll find me. And then, Jonah, do you want to tell everyone where they can find your anus? You can find my anus at Facebook under Jonah Baker. Um, you can also email me at bakerbase.com with no E. That's B-A-K-R-B-A-S-S. And people... I do want to know what you know about Uranus, but send me jokes. Lots and lots of jokes. <laughs> yes, we want to hear all the Uranus jokes. Uranus jokes. I'd love to hear more about Uranus and, <laughs> and Uranus's jokes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, once again, uh, thank everyone for listening. You know, if you like the show and you want to show us that you care, you can go to Apple Podcast and give us a rate and, the, and review. You can also rate it on whichever podcatcher that lets you review and rate. That, that also works for us. It just, you know, helps us in the long run. Um, and we'd really appreciate it. If you also want to be even far more amazing and be the best anus that you could be, you can, you can actually donate to the show by going to anchor.fm slash Pod, And if you click on the support this podcast button, it will let you uh, donate to us on a monthly basis. If you want to give us money, just straight up money, you can just send us an email. We'll gladly arrange to receive all the money you want to give us. Not in exchange for anything besides the show. <laughs> so go ahead and give. <laughs> so, so, I mean... You're talking about Uranus a lot and giving. And <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of show. So I also want to thank John Odway for letting us use his song Bunsen Burner. He might be regretting it at this point, but please go listen to, to his music. He's really cool. He's a good, he's a cool guy and he has really funky stuff. Um, so finally, I want to tell each and every one of you that you are not planets. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You are stars. Bye. This is the anus of your anus signing out. Let me be your